welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm your host, Emma Graney, and this is the We're Gonna Shuffle It Just a Little Bit edition. <laughs> Everyone loves it when I sing the edition names, right? Yes. That's, yes. The yeah. fan mail comes in. Oh, uh, it, pause it, in. It's, it's up to Dave Bloom's ankles, the fan mail from the last time you sang. <laughs> With me today, I have Sun and Journal Managing Editor, Dave Breckenridge. Hello. Now, you haven't been with us for a while. It's what, your second time here? Oh, the court order must be lifted, I guess. <laughs> Hooray! So, when the boss is in the studio with us, we got to be good. <laughs> City columnist Paula Simons. Being very good, because that's my boss right there next to me. <laughs> and my fellow legislative reporter, Stuart Thompson. Hey. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good, how was your hash brown? It was very tasty. Yeah? You look like you're really enjoying that thing. Yeah. It's an important part of the morning. Mm. So, uh, this morning on the Press Gallery, we've got a few things going. Obviously, shuffle it just a little bit. I mean, you know, use your brains there, folks. What are we going to talk about? The uh, cabinet shuffle for oh 10 my, points. Well done, Paula. I'm, ding, still, ding, I'm, ding, I'm ding. still not over losing to Graham in the, <laughs> in the news quiz. We're also going to talk a little bit about the child intervention panel that has been formed. And we are going to have a quick look at the hot mess that is the PC leadership race right now. Let's so start with the cabinet shuffle, given that it did happen yesterday. And full disclosure, yesterday I happened to have the day off because I've been working over the weekend and they were like, yeah, yeah, just take Thursday. It's fine. Nothing's going to happen on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> this, this means that you can never have a day off ever again. Ever. No, I'm, I'm actually just going to take in a little tiny bed and I'm going to sleep in the press gallery in the Legislative Assembly forever and ever. Uh, but Tomo, I know that you were you were around yesterday. Yeah. You covered this. So, uh, so what happened here? Well, they told Graham Thompson, our esteemed colleague, the same thing. He went off to I think BC. <laughs> he was a little bit annoyed. And actually, something I from talking to the Sun Sports guys, there's some lore about how Terry Jones, the Sun Sports columnist, he went off to the mountains when Gretzky was traded, and he was assured <laughs> nothing was going to happen. And he's terrified to take a day off to this day. <laughs> uh, this wasn't, I don't think, quite in that area (laughs) it was was a small (laughs) shuffle wasn't it uh yeah so three positions were changed um the one that i think everyone was kind of expecting was the split for human services not that we were necessarily for sure that was going to happen but you felt like after the the controversy and the problems with the serenity case they had to do something about that and uh, I, when graham did his year-end interview with uh, the premier he actually asked her you know, are you going to fire uh, Irfan Sabir, the minister of the Human Services Department? And she said no. And they've been very clear about that. They've really dug in about that. Um, but then he said, well, what about splitting up that ministry? Because it is, it's a super ministry that uh, created by Alison Redford in 2011, rolled together several ministries. He said, it's a little unwieldy. Would you ever consider that? And she went, well, I don't know, and kind of sloughed it off. So we kind of thought that maybe that would happen. And that is indeed what happened. They've created a children's services ministry. And that will deal with those issues alone. And uh, I think the, the responsibilities, the big job coming ahead falls on Danielle Larivet's shoulders. She was municipal affairs minister, um, seems to have acquitted herself pretty well. Um, Notley referred to the Municipal Government Act that was passed last year 
she referred to it as the biggest municipal legislation that's been passed in 25 years. And that thing was huge. Like yeah. that, that thing could have killed a man. Just physically, very <laughs> large piece right. of legislation. And plus, she was the point person on the Fort McMurray fire right. as the Minister yeah. of Municipal Affairs the, while the fire was happening and during the recovery period, which meant that she had to deal with lots of press and she had to deal with a very crabby Wood Buffalo Regional Council. Um, and that was really the first time I had dealings with her. And I was very impressed with the way she handled some really tough files. And the time I spoke to her most recently was um, about the fight between Beaumont and Edmonton over annexation. And again, I came away from my interview with her thinking, okay, this is somebody who knows her brief and who isn't afraid to talk to the media and and explain things. And so I, I think that's a very hopeful sign for a department that needs a strong minister, not just a strong minister who's willing to go in and rattle some cages and shake up a bureaucracy. Because I, I think your friend Sabir is a perfectly lovely man, but I think he got run roughshod by his own staff who just led him around by the nose. So I'm hoping that Daniel Larravee will have the gumption to stand up to her own people. But I'm hoping, too, that she'll be able to be the public face of that ministry to handle questions in question period, to handle questions from the media in a way that Sabir just couldn't. Yeah, I think uh, something that um, the premier also mentioned, too, that's worth noting is that there's not a lot of shuffling going on behind the scenes here. This is um, the ministry has been split. There's two ministers responsible, and uh, most of the workers, the frontline workers, are going to still be together because there's integrated services they've created there that uh, the premier said, we don't want to split that up because people have gotten used to that, and it actually worked pretty well. So it does seem like that they did specifically mention, look, now we've got a minister responsible for the welfare of children. And I think that maybe symbolically and maybe having someone who, as seems to be the case, I mean, it's hard to know these things for sure, but the premier certainly said it, somebody who is as competent as Larive handling this, um, I think that is the big thing for the premier right now. She can kind of put this aside now and not worry about it. Yeah, because just having a minister of children's services isn't the magic answer. We've had lots of weak ministers of children's services over the years uh, who were just not very good at their jobs. The fact that Notley looked at her bench, looked at somebody who's been a strong performer and parachuted that person in to do damage control is, I think, interesting strategically and I hope interesting uh, for the betterment of children's services in this province. Now, we've also got a new face in the cabinet. Uh, he brings 100% more beard, <laughs> Shay Anderson. It's who, such a beard. That thing is epic. It, it is. Like, yeah. there's no other word for it. I think that was my first time seeing it in person, other than, like, question period. It's overwhelming, it was, isn't it? Yeah. And was actually, it? I think it was uh, spruced up a little bit. For, oh, yeah? Yeah, for the oath. some beard oil or something, it, right? I don't think it was trimmed. We asked, actually, the Premier's comms director if it was trimmed. And she could neither confirm nor deny Let's that. See. But she said it looks like it's spruced up a little bit. So Shay Anderson, apart from having an epic <laughs> beard, um, is a telecommunications <laughs> technologist. He was very active in uh, union life before he ran. Uh, he's he's been a, he's a rookie cabinet minister. He's been on the back benches. He hasn't been a particularly. Um, you know, I mean, there have been backbenchers who I think have had higher profile. So I was intrigued to see that he's been given this ministry. Now, it's true that Larravee has sort of done, you know, she's she's laid the groundwork for him. He's not coming into the ministry in disarray. I think she's left him uh, a, a, a pretty functional shop. But still, this is a, this is a big step up for him. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see 
you know, of, of all the people on the back benches, he's the one that, that she picked. So we'll have to see, you know, what uh, what's hidden behind the beard. I actually wasn't that surprised by that selection. Yeah, actually, I will yeah. say Emma called it before this I happened. Did. And, and she texted and me to gloat about that during I the did. announcement. And so, what what made what made you think that he was um, that he was a rising star? Um, I think I can see into the future. I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced I'm magical. No, um, I don't know. Something he's he has an extremely good way of dealing, not just with his own uh, with his own party, but he has a very I think strong tie to um, the opposition parties as well. He seems extremely reasonable, very level headed in the way he deals with everybody. Notwithstanding that one time he and Panda got into a little bit of an argument outside a committee meeting. He's involved a lot of committees. I think he's chaired a uh, public accounts committee as well. He just seemed like a, a, a good pick and I really couldn't tell you exactly more than that. But I wasn't surprised. He seems to have a, a pretty decent public profile as well. And if you yeah. look at some of the, the profiles of other NDP backbenchers, he's one of those people that stands out among the crowd. And you're right, he is. Uh, he's quite friendly with people across the aisle, including uh, his fellow Beardo, uh, Derek Fildebrandt <laughs> yes. of the Wild Rose. I'm sorry, you cannot compare those two beards. That's those are, true, those are... but they, they are... Derek's um, is a lot shorter, The allegiance of beard. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it's true. And actually, yeah, those two, I think, sit on public accounts committee. And once, um, I think Derek Fildebrandt had a bit of a cold and Shay Anderson's bringing out tissues to give to him. It was a beautiful behind-the-scenes political moment. <laughs> well, I think this is <laughs> Alleged like, bromance of which I knew not. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think this is, it's, it's sort of a weird thing to be talking about with a minister, but it is really hard to deny this because yesterday at the press conference, Brianna Carson-Smith, who works for CTV, she's normally, um, she does a lot of city hall stuff and really knows that area. She asked... Um, Shay Anderson about Don Iveson's pitch for this 10 cents on the dollar infrastructure funding and that is a pretty complicated thing and Iveson's been pushing this and uh, he clearly did not either he didn't know or he was pretty sure that it wasn't the time for him to be talking about this stuff and he said you know I haven't been briefed on that I'm I'm gonna do my best to learn about that and it was one of those moments where a lesser a less likable person wouldn't be able to pull that off saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, and I'm the minister for that. But it seemed kind well, of like... I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how Trump's cabinet picks have, have been going through their Senate you know, hearings. So. And I, I was thinking, you know, that's true. He hasn't... He's, this is not even his first day yet. He's been the minister for half an hour. So to know about this, it's kind of like... It's crazy to expect him to know about that. But he did handle it really well. And it did kind of show that he is a pretty likable guy. It, it does also show that there is quite a bit that he's going to have to get caught up on, even if uh, Larave did a lot of the heavy lifting on the municipal affairs file. There's still infrastructure deals that mayors probably want to work out. I know there's the big city charters, and I had read a tweet yesterday that Shea Anderson wouldn't be handling that file. I don't know if you can yeah, fill me in on that, sad. if Joe Cece is going to be taking that on, and I wonder if that's part of... Uh, making sure a rookie cabinet minister doesn't screw something up. Yeah, I would say that's exactly what it is. And so I think we're, the situation they've got themselves in now is the heavy lifting on the Municipal Government Act is over. Larvae did that. And the city charter will be handled by... CC will take the lead. And, and he's then, a former Calgary city councillor. Yeah. So. so, and that's, and then Larvae will also be helping with that. And then also Shea Anderson. And I think that that's exactly the reason they chose that because somebody else at the press conference asked... This is, I think, I, I think Keith Dryden tweeted yesterday. This is the seventh minister in four years for municipal affairs, and it's, I think, the fourth this government has had. Um, I'm not sure about that, but it, there's been a lot of them. And somebody asked, "Is it, 
isn't it going to be frustrating for all these municipal leaders to deal with a new person, get acquainted with a new person, and then everything they've been pitching, everything they've been asking for, out the window right away? And they said, well, no, we've got Joe Cece, where he's pretty familiar with Nahid Nenshi and Don Iveson, so uh, he's a good guy to take the lead on this. So I think that is they're trying to get a bit of a buffer for Anderson in his, his first little while. Erfan Sabir, let's, let's say remains in cabinet, which upset the Wild Rose greatly. They wanted him bounced right out. Um, He's, I I took a lot of angry, angry response from people on Twitter when um, the headline on my column referred to this as a demotion. Because people said, well, he's still in cabinet. He's a really nice guy. Plus, you know, he's responsible for community services and people with developmental disabilities. And are you saying that those people don't count and aren't as important as children? People said, you know, people grow up, you know, it still matters. And uh, let it be said, I do not think that um, community services is an unimportant portfolio. But there's no doubt Sabir had his responsibilities um, more than halved, I guess. So he's been he's been left with a smaller, a much smaller department and a smaller um, range of responsibilities. If you don't want to call that a demotion, I guess um, to so- soothe people's feelings, we can say that he's been a uh, laterally transferred. Um, but uh, I mean, there is no doubt that uh, Notley stayed loyal to him. She did not throw him over the side. But it's a face saving move and I wish him luck in his new portfolio. I mean uh, people accused me of being a very nasty person. I think Irfan Sabir is a perfectly nice man and he's not stupid but he was in way over his head politically in a hot button portfolio and if you can't handle the pressure of being the minister in the public spotlight in a portfolio where you are going to inevitably be in the public spotlight because you know, no matter how we fix our child welfare system, there's still going to be tragedies, and you have to be able to handle a crisis. If you can't handle a crisis and maintain public confidence that you are in control of your brief, you're not the right person for that job. Well, let's not pretend that the developmental disabilities file isn't a hot button file yeah, either. Is there also are a issues, and if file. he could, it, yeah. if he can acquit himself well in the children's services file, it may be higher profile. What's to say that people are going to have confidence in in him in his new role, even in a lesser role? You know, it, it his handling of the Serenity case through the fall session, I think, showed uh, that he may not be best suited in cabinet. I don't know if Notley's be- bench strength is there to put someone else in that file. I guess we'll see how he does in his new role. But it does leave some lingering questions about how he'll manage his new file. After the oath was taken, it was a really interesting moment. Um, Sabir came over and gave Rachel Notley the biggest hug I've ever seen at one of these kind of formal events. And she looked kind of taken aback by it. And yeah, I mean, she's not she's not Justin Trudeau. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but the look on his face just seemed like he was deeply grateful for her not firing him and not I guess he would see it as hanging him out to dry and I think the way the government has reacted to this is that they're going to stick by their guy and that this has been an unfair attack and there are two sides to this there's if you think that he's not competent enough to run the department you just you just don't want him anywhere near it but if you think this is an unfair stitch up by the media and the opposition or that it's been overblown and I think a lot of the NDP people think that especially the caucus there's I think a very symbolic moment there that your leaders got your back. And I think maybe that's something that they were going for with this. I will say the one thing out of this that I find kind of strange is that I assume they knew that the cabinet shuffle was coming on Thursday, and yet they still let him announce the panel looking into child interventions. 
I, I found that strange. Why wouldn't they let Larivay put a stamp on the her role? A fresh face. We're going to look into this. We're going to fix the problems. It just seemed kind of weird. I mean, I it is really odd because when when the panel press release came out, and we're, we're see this is our nice segue to the panel. Yeah, this was we're, our we're, next topic. That's oh, right, Dave. <laughs> that's right. You're you're like the border collie of the uh, just just hurting we sheet where we need to go. But you know, when they put out the press release, they said in the press release that Irfan Sabir would be an ex officio member of the panel. They didn't say the minister. They said his actual name. I'm pretty sure in the press release. And I actually had to call Stewart yesterday and say. Well, so wait a minute. Is he still going to be on the child intervention review panel, or will it be uh, Daniel Larive as the new minister? Uh, Stewart assured me that it will be the new minister. But but it does it does raise an interesting question. I mean, why why would you roll out that panel announcement in advance of the new minister? Maybe they just wanted you know, as they say in gymnastics, to let him round off, to let him have one symbolic win under his belt before he takes on his his new responsibilities. I could take a guess. Um, some annoying reporter wrote a story about how the government was dragging <laughs> its heels. I don't know who the- that could have possibly been. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe they were feeling the heat because that that was a story that I think was annoying to them, that they were dragging their heels on this, and the opposition agreed with that premise. And, you know, maybe they felt a little heat to just announce it either way. Yeah, maybe. Because that now that child intervention panel, um, that is something else that I really want to talk about today because it is something that uh, was originally proposed by Rick McIver as an all-party committee. Then the government turned around and said, yeah, we're, we're going to do something like that. That's actually a really good idea. Then Irfan Sabir, and this was after there were calls for his resignation over the handling of the Serenity file, said, yep, we're going to have it, but it's going to be an all-party panel instead, at which point the, the opposition parties banded together and said, this is a terrible idea, terrible, we hate your terms of reference, let's do it this way. They didn't reach a compromise until December 22nd. And the fact it took that long, I thought was interesting. And that was just before Christmas. So then they had to find experts. And then they had to figure out who was even on the panel from the NDP side. But it still took a fair bit of time, I thought, to actually pull that together. And you're right, in light of this cabinet shuffle, why did they announce it when they did? I know because you and I bugged them. Yeah, maybe that and bugged was and bugged and bugged and bugged. I, it, it, we it, are pretty. It, 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 it behooves us, Emma, yeah. I suppose, that since the two of us <laughs> were phoning them six times a day to say when are you going to announce the members of the panel, to uh, then fault them for announcing the members of the panel. Oh no, I don't <laughs> fault them for doing that. But it was it was an an intriguing twist and turning of of timing. So here here's the problem with the members of the panel. I mean, the first duty of this panel is to examine the child death review system, which is completely messed up and has been for a long time. It's got so many moving parts. It's it's like a snakes and ladders game. And so I was really hoping that there would be someone on the panel who would bring expertise from outside the world of social work. Someone like a former medical examiner, someone like a lawyer, someone like uh, you know a retired police officer, because there are problems with the child death review system that don't have anything to do with social work per se. I mean, it's a it's a medical and legal issue how we decide which child deaths need to be investigated and and how we release that information. And so, although they've appointed um, very st- people with sterling reputations in the field of child welfare to the panel, there's no one on the panel with uh, forensic experience or legal experience. And the only physician on the panel is Dr. David Swan, who will be representing the Liberal Party. So there's not somebody who uh, has an expertise in pediatrics to talk about how, you know, which deaths 
should should be you know publicly examined and reported upon maybe they'll bring in expert witnesses or witnesses you know who have some experience in those fields but i'm a little bit concerned right out the gate at the waiting at the number of social workers on on the panel i mean obviously you need some social work expertise on a on a panel that looks at the child intervention system but i don't think that should be the only pool that we that we draw from or the primary one i think i was actually spent monday and tuesday at the review of the child advocacy act and i think i like i'm trying to think there was only one solely dedicated social workers group and uh paul i think you were listening to this part to the the hearings and it i i totally understand where they're coming from because you know how hard that work is and i think especially in this context in the department they're very embattled because there's there's so many things you can do wrong and there's so many things that if you if you choose one option it's wrong for one reason if you choose the other option it's wrong for another reason and i think these are people who genuinely want to make a difference and they are dealing with horrific uh issues that don't really have a good answer like you have less bad answers the whole way through so having said that i understand why they're embattled but i think often they can be wrong for that reason and you know this woman was saying you know we need to keep the names private we can't name social workers if there's issues and i think you know paul and i were talking about this you if a police officer does something against the law we should know his name or her name and that's because they have great responsibility to the public and these are how this is the way we keep people accountable so i understand where they're coming from i think that side of it needs to be said but there were a lot of people at that review who had a vastly different perspective like there were people from uh boyle street education center saying we need those names out there because we need to know what happens when something goes wrong and by talking to the family and having the family find out about it and learn about it and sort of get to the bottom of it that is a huge part of this so uh but it, it was very and as to Paula's point, it was really interesting to me the varied groups that were at this review, and I think something similar, not quite to the extent of a full act review, but something similar at this panel with the variance would have been good. With the panel too, he was asked whether or not they will have the legal clout to compel people to appear in front of the panel. He didn't actually seem to know the answer to that. So I don't know whether or not they will be able to, or whether it's just something they hadn't... Notley said no yesterday. Oh, she did? Because actually... Tom Vernon, the Global Reporter, asked if Orphan uh, Sabir could be compelled to testify. And she said that wouldn't happen, but also, no, they can't do that. Oh, they don't have that power. You know, I, mean, I don't want this panel to be, you know, like a the court of the star chamber. I don't want it to be, a, you know, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. And I don't want this to be an inquisitorial thing where people are held out to blame. That shouldn't be the function of this panel. This panel should be trying to figure out how we improve systems. You know, how do we make a child death review system that functions so that when a child dies in horrific circumstances, it doesn't get swept under the carpet? How, and that isn't just about kids in care. The child death review system, you know, could also look at things like, you know, what happens when a custodial parent um, murders his two young sons, as happened in Spruce Grove in December. There are all kinds of really vital elements to the child death review system that we don't want to politicize. What we want is you know, an analysis of, of how how what we've built is failing. Uh, so this panel will be a disaster if it thinks of itself as an inquisitorial court. It has to be something that gives cogent advice about how to fix a problem. And it'll be a disaster if it feels that it's the the sole group of experts on what needs to be done. I hope that they 
they're able to, if they don't have those experts on the panel, call and have conversations with, as Paula said, law enforcement and forensics specifically. I, th- I think that um, it'd be doing the kids a disservice if they didn't look at a broad swath of issues and, and were open to and weren't open to uh, the advice of outsiders. But uh, I think the other interesting conversation I had this week was with Auditor General Merwin Sahar, who um, had his own really interesting uh, proposal that he made at, at the uh, at the hearings into the future of the Child and Youth Advocate, which Stuart referenced earlier. Um, and the Auditor General said, you know, here we have a, a child and youth advocate. He makes recommendation after recommendation after recommendation. And we have no way of tracking those recommendations or seeing, you know, what the department is acting upon, why it acts, why it doesn't act. And he said, you know, to me, isn't, isn't that kind of absurd? He said, when I make, I, I paraphrase, this is not how he talks, but, you know, uh, when he makes a recommendation, it matters because uh, public accounts committee has the power to call people and say, okay, the Auditor General said to fix this. Have you fixed it? If you haven't fixed it, why haven't you fixed it? So when, you know, when the Auditor General makes a recommendation, it has, it has clout, it has teeth. When the Child and Youth Advocate, who is also an independent officer of the legislature, makes a recommendation, it's nice. It goes in a file and there's no mechanism to hold the department to account to say, did you act on the recommendation? And if not, if you thought it was a poor recommendation, why? And and what are you doing in the alternative? And so I thought it was fascinating that it took someone, you know, from totally outside the child welfare system and totally outside the legal and political system to say, hey, I'm the Auditor General. I'll tell you how systems ought to work. And your system doesn't work because no one is accountable. Well, the first meeting is on February 1st. It is a public meeting. They have eight to 10 weeks to do their first report into the death review panel. And then they have uh, six to eight months, I believe, to do their big report with recommendations and actual concrete actions that can be taken to improve the system. So I guess we'll see what happens from here. So I want to move briefly over to the uh, other interesting thing that took over Alberta politics this week. Now I was at the, um, God, this has been a long week. I was only Sunday. I was at the PC leaders (laughs) debate where we had um, Starkey, Kenny, Khan and uh, Nelson all take the stage in an actual debate format uh, at a banquet hall here in, here in Edmonton. And it was, um, Oh, something to behold, really. But then the fallout it just became even crazier. Dave, you were paying attention to all of this, right? Yeah, as best I could from uh, <laughs> hockey practice and, and with the kids. But I was so over the weekend. Um, there were rumblings that one of Kenny's key organizers uh, had been turfed as a member in good standing of the PC party. Um, some of you out there may know the name Alan Hallman. Uh, he's been involved in many campaigns over the last know, 20 years or 20, more. 30 years, 20, maybe. 20, 30 yeah. years, yeah. He's been a very active member of the, of the PC party and the Conservative Party is, uh, federally as well. That he had been bounced as a, as a member due to some social media posts that uh, violated the zero-tolerance uh, policy that was put in place after the debacle that was the Red Deer Convention in October that saw Sandra Jansen leave the party and eventually join the NDP. And then I believe it was Sunday that Jason Kenney finally came out and said that Alan Hallman was no longer involved with his campaign. Or was it Monday? Well, on Sunday, Catherine O'Neill, the president of the party, didn't confirm it off the bat when I spoke with her. And then eventually it came out, you know, but but party insider told me, yeah, it was Alan Hallman. So I did a quick story on that and then kind of followed up after the debate and 
Jason Kenny was asked, well, if Alan Horman can't, he's suspended, he's basically kicked out the party for a year, he can't attend any PC events, uh, he can't have access to any databases, he can, like, nothing to do with the party for a year. So Jason Kenny did confirm, like, uh, this was straight after the debate, yeah, he won't have anything to do with my campaign because he just can't now. And then things got weird because then, yeah, then the U- the PC Youth Association decided to name Alan Hallman, who's not a member in good standing, an honorary chair, which <laughs> I understand caused some strife within the PC Youth Association. And then... Um, and they did that just by sending out a tweet with a yeah. letter attached to it. <laughs> they did it out of spite, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Yeah. And then Rick McIver, Rick McIver, who is a member of the board, who was there when they voted to turf Holman, posts a picture during the PC leaders debate of himself with Alan Holman going, hey, I, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but the, the, the context of the tweet was like, here I am with my good buddy, Alan Holman. Mm-hmm. And, and so... I think he said something like, watching the PC debate, leaders debate, that's entertainment. Oh, it, it, <laughs> so it's good it, entertainment. It's good entertainment. <laughs> something like that. So, so, you know, one could look at that and say, are you... Are you trying to undermine you trolling the, the party? Are you, right are you now? trolling the party? Are you trolling party president Catherine O'Neill? The party that you lead. <laughs> <laughs> and then things got even uglier because the social media backlash towards Catherine O'Neill and Kim Chriselle, who's the former Edmonton City Councilor uh, and member of the board who moved the motion to suspend uh, Holman's membership, uh, got very, very ugly. Um, I took some criticism in my column because I didn't quote some of the things. Um, uh, Sarah O'Donnell and I talked about this and agreed that some of the things are so inflammatory, and I can't say them in a nice family newspaper anywhere. Um, and so I shan't say them on this nice family podcast. But uh, I don't know if I can say it. it's fair. Take it from me that they got some really nasty comments, but they, they did. So um, there's this huge schism now between the elected party president, uh, Catherine O'Neill, and the leader of the party in the legislature, who is Rick McIver, um, uh, you know, all of which got even more surreal when our colleague Don Braid wrote a column, which was sort of spitballing, in which he said, you know, maybe there's still a chance that the board will just turf Kenny completely and disqualify him as a candidate. I, 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 I adore Don Braid. I think that is not a thing that is going to happen. There may be a couple members of the Tory board who dearly wish it would happen, but that that is not a thing that the the conservatives are going to do. And it forced the party to turn around and put out a letter saying that we're not going to do that. I mean, the opportunity for them to do that would have been before he officially announced his campaign and said, no, you can't run. I don't think they were going to do that either. I think that he had a two-month head start on any other candidate, and he already had a lot of support from a lot of people within the party. So to even do that then would have looked bad on them, even though he wants to destroy the party. Yeah. What helps to understand all of this is if, if you have to know a little bit about who Alan Holman is, because the ostensible reason that Alan Holman lost his membership, or one of the reasons, is that is that he said some rude things on Twitter. Can I say what they are? I, I, it was I don't really know. Ask, funny. Ask the boss. It was, he. I'm just going to say, he yeah, called sure. one guy an asshole, and he called another guy a dickety dick. Which is, as an Australian, and I have a very creative way of using swear words, and I'd never heard that term before. No, and that and that was that was directed towards a gay rights activist in Calgary, Mike Morrison. So, you know, those are those are not nice things to say. By the discourse rules of Twitter, they're not 
they're sure as heck not the worst things I've seen on Twitter in the last 48 hours. Uh, but but the problem is that Holman was also involved in that, uh, you know, egregious bit of overstepping where, as Emma knows, uh, the Kenny people had their um, their hospitality suite, you know, right across from where the voters were voting. Yeah. So this was the Edmonton Ellerslie uh, Constituency Association uh, when they were picking their their delegates. And as as Emma, as Emma reported, uh, Alan Holman, when told that they would face a fine for that, basically said, screw you. We've got lots of money. Find yeah. us find us all you want. So, I mean, I think Alan Holman has an elbows up attitude towards political campaigning. And uh Many people who have dealt with Alan Holman in Calgary politics could tell you that um, he does not, he's not gentle in his approach Mm -hmm. to political strategy. Someone uh, I spoke with here who knew Alan through the Lee Richardson campaign in the 2004 election uh, said the same thing. He's, you know, he's the kind of guy you want on your team because he has that same approach to politics. It's the same reason a lot of people say they want guys like Stephen Carter on their team because Stephen Carter has, well, he may not have the same brash approach when it comes to profanity. Uh, He is still an aggressive strategist. Guys like Warren Kinsella, the same thing. People make a career out of being um, attack dogs or enforcers in politics and good strategists, and they take no prisoners. And Alan Hallman is that kind of guy. It also says a lot about party politics in general, is that people have told me that internal leadership races are far more no-holds-barred than an election campaign, and they get a lot uglier. And it just happens that this is one of the first that you're seeing also fought in an era in social media where the tone is a lot nastier than it was, say, five years ago. In the 2011 Tory leadership race, social media was all about engagement and um, reaching people, and now it's all about fighting. The thing that I loved about this story was that Rick McIver's excuse for why he missed the vote was <laughs> he was on his phone. He was close to a high score in Candy Crush. And no, 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 no. <laughs> and, and he just missed it. What Rick McIver said to me is that he was on the phone with two members of his caucus. And I think he had more than one phone. He was trying to speak to both Dave Rodney and Richard Godford at the same time. And he was trying to figure out how they wanted to vote because uh, they are allowed to vote even though they were on the phone at this in-camera thing. And he said to me, I was just like, I was fooling around on my phone and the vote went by. Yeah, I'm going to ask him about his high score. Yeah, I'm sure that's candy crush. And, 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 I, and I, said, I said, you know, because like, Rick McIver, not a shy guy. Um, <laughs> I said, but you, you could have said, wait a minute, I didn't vote. And wait a minute, we didn't vote. And what do you mean it's unanimous? Because we haven't voted yet. And he said to me, well, I could see that I was going to lose. And so I didn't really see that there was much point in, in bringing it up. Because I said to him, how can you, like, how can you be critical of the decision when, according to Catherine O'Neill and Kim Crescelli, you put up your hand and voted in favor? Um and he said, well, he doesn't remember voting in favor because he was fiddling around on his phone. And uh, and B, that he he was under the impression, he said he was told that this decision would be secret, that nobody would ever know that Alan Holman had been suspended from the party. Uh, nobody would ever notice right, that he yeah. wasn't. Right. And, and that ca- was going mean, to happen. I mean, ca- Catherine O'Neill said to me, uh, party president, that that is simply not true, that he always knew because they have to record these things as part of the minutes, which are, are accessible. Um, and, you know, McIver said that he felt, you know, that this was leaked. And I said, well, OK, but you don't know that it was leaked by somebody 
who was uh, opposed to Alan Hallman. It could just as easily have been leaked by an Alan Hallman loyalist who was angry that Alan Hallman was suspended. I, I mean, nobody leaked to me, so I don't know who the leakers were. But, you know, within minutes of Hallman's suspension, or at least within, you know, within that same afternoon, the memo went out to Jason Kenney's camp and to the other campaigns to notify them of the suspension. So it it wasn't just the 38 people in the room who voted. And let's, so I, I want to stress that, right? This isn't just like Catherine O'Neill thought this up out of her own blonde head, right? I mean, there were 38 people in the room who voted and another four on the phone. Um, if they opposed Holman's suspension, they had ample time to speak up. And both, you know, McIver didn't vote and uh, and the head of the PC Youth who, you know, anointed Holman uh, uh, their honorary chair, she didn't vote either. Uh, so she didn't vote and she didn't speak up at the time. And, and I spoke to Sonia Kant and she said, well, you know, there was a lot going on in the room. So I just, I, I think at least she wasn't on her phone. The moral of all this is to just get your flax off Twitter. Like there's nothing to be gained from this. There's, I'm sure advertising a party can do crafted messages they put on Twitter, but to have all these people sniping and arguing with each other on Twitter all night, like I where, don't where even, people can see you. <laughs> Stop there's, ruining our fun. It's <laughs> entertainment for us, right? Honestly, I, I did feel like I just wanted to make some popcorn and watch all this unfold. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. Stuart's absolutely right. I mean, what is the upside to Alan Holman as a conservative party strategist and activist picking fights with people who are non-combatants? On Twitter, I mean, as far as I know, these these people aren't even involved in. Yeah. I mean, I just is he really going to convince Mike Morrison to vote for Jason Kenney? Like, probably not. <laughs> probably so, not. I think it's just so silly. And the only time we ever hear about it, if you're a normal person, not like us, uh, the only time a normal person ever hears about it is when they do something ridiculous and stupid that makes the news and embarrasses their candidate. I just don't understand why you would be on there. It just kind of outlines as an outsider watching all of this kind of unfold, that the debate did get pretty snipey between Stephen Kahn especially and Jason Kenney. Kahn was basically just at Kenney the entire time saying how he wants to just destroy the party and called up his record on Harper and asked why he wasn't defending Alberta uh, about pipelines when he had the chance and, and all kinds of things. The crowd in the room actually were booing Khan at one point and then they booed Kenny at another point. Richard Starkey got a lot of applause. I would say Byron Nelson got the the most amount of laughs. It was a very engaged room and I wasn't expecting that and I think that really speaks to just how this PC leadership race is going and unfolding and well, I'm sure more fun will continue to. And you can't fault Khan for really going at Kenny. This is their last no. chance, right? Mm-hmm. This is as best as the record will show as of right now. Kenny is ahead in delegates, um, although the numbers have been, depending on what Twitter source you're looking at, but mm-hmm. um, he's had a really organized campaign. Kenny's got great ga- ground game, and he's proven that through many federal elections. And so this is the the status quo candidates last chance uh they have what less than two months now Mm -hmm. to to save their party as it were yeah and i think stephen khan realized that and just went hell for leather after kenny and (laughs) took every chance he got so now to our regular segment 
good stuff from the gallery. Dave, have you got something for us this week? couple pieces. Uh, one from uh, our own Leanne Falder. It's uh, not political. It's uh, about uh, mental health in the restaurant industry. It was been up online for the last couple of days. It'll appear in tomorrow's uh, Journal Insights section. It's a really good look at uh, kind of the stress and, and pressure uh, restaurant workers are under. Um, politically speaking, I really liked uh, Jason Markasoff's uh, look at the PC leadership race and how we got here. Uh, in McLean's and uh, non-political and, and non-reading uh, the new single from Spoon is really good. <laughs> you should go search that out on YouTube. You've covered all multimedia there. That's fantastic. Paula, what have you got? Uh, well, I wanted to pick something as far away from from Trump as possible. And I was really struck as I was uh, listening to the news this week about the situation that's going on in the Gambia in uh, West Africa where their president for more or less life for the last 20 years was defeated when they held elections a few months ago, soundly defeated by an outsider, a guy who'd done his education in Britain, come back, been a successful property developer uh, named Adama Burrow. Um, So he's the elected leader of the Gambia, except that the uh, current president won't leave. Um, So uh, Mr. Burrow was sworn in as president uh, this week uh, in neighboring Senegal. And now, as I'm speaking, uh, troops are massing on the border of the Gambia. Uh, There's a West African coalition of the backing of the United Nations to go in uh, and remove the current president, Yaya Jama, and place Mr. Burrow in office. So we could be, as as I'm speaking to you, we could be on the brink of a major shooting war in West Africa. And I think with all the world's attention on Donald Trump, people have not been paying attention to what's going on there. And so I wanted to highlight a, a really good piece in The Independent, uh, which is a backgrounder on everything that's happening there. For those of you who, like me, know nothing about the Gambia. I would also say that um, that I took on a new gig this week as our uh, uh, well, this is not going to be an, an enduring thing, but I, I uh, reviewed the new Catalyst Theatre piece at the Citadel, which opened this week, um, uh, Fortune Falls, which is a really interesting political parable about uh, the dangers of faith in big business and uh, coming in the time of Trump and Kevin O'Leary, uh, a really fascinating show. I was going to recommend Markazov's piece as well, and I really liked the way that it came out around the same time as Paula, your piece about the um, the PC dumpster fire, as I'm calling it. Uh <laughs> Whether or not that's accurate. But I think both pieces gave a really interesting, different perspective about what's going on in the PCs right now. Stuart, what have you got for us? Uh, well, I'm going to recommend a podcast, which you should listen to after the press gallery. Um, but <laughs> it's it's a new one. It's called, it's called Pod Save America by a couple of guys, a few guys who worked for Barack Obama, his speechwriters and policy advisors. And I think the one specifically, I was listening to it this morning, um, is they actually did his last interview in the White House. And it's just a fascinating insight into Barack Obama because, first of all, he is one of those guys who just loves to make fun of people. Like, he just loves to clown his friends. And that's a side of him that you don't really get to see because when he did that to Hillary Clinton during a debate, it looked horrific. It just was a terrible political thing to do. But it's a big part of who he is. So you get to see that side of him. And then there's also this very sweet, loyal side of him, which... Usually we don't see that from politicians because that doesn't really play, especially with your staff. Um, so 
it's fascinating. It's a really interesting, insightful interview. But just to see that personal side of the man who's no longer president, I thought it was pretty interesting. Right. Well, thank you all for joining me, Dave, Paula, Stuart, and David Bloom as well, who uh, joined us today to film a little bit of this and put it up on edmontonjournal.com, where you can find all episodes of the Press Gallery. You can also subscribe to our SoundCloud channel, iTunes, and TuneIn Radio. Yeah, that's where you can find us. And I hope you can join us next week on the Press Gallery.